Welcome to Morning Coffee and Mimosas. I'm Christina. And I'm Joe. We are a father-daughter duo. We come here Sunday mornings, but you can come here anytime you please. We banter about life, about business, and we do it over coffee and mimosas. Good morning. Good morning, Faj. How are you today? Well, I'm doing really well because we have two more awesome guests here with us this morning. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. Why don't you tell us who they are? So listeners, welcome. Let me tell you a little bit about our guests this morning. We are joined by Pete Radigan and Jim McGrath. Pete Radigan, who my dad has known through all different aspects of professional life for probably the better part of what 30 years now yeah almost almost 30 is a fantastic guest as we continue on our journey talking about resilience you heard from reg green last week if you listened with us about his experience as a father that lost his son and donated his seven-year-old son's organs to give life to seven others Well, Pete, this week is a recipient and with us today because of a heart transplant nearly 30 years ago. Yeah. So Pete just finished writing and released an incredible book called Tragedy to Triumph, the story of Tom's heart. Tom was Pete's donor and a 17-year-old boy who, who was killed tragically. So we are going to hear from Pete today about his experience, about the amazing relationship that he holds still to this day with Tom's mom, Jan. And we're going to hear from Jim McGrath, who did such a fabulous job telling the story of Pete's experience and Tom's heart. Pete is the creator and founder of Transplant Speakers International, a group that really did amazing things with helping to put transplant knowledge, education, and training on the map and really change the world and create life for so many others. So Pete, Jim, thank you for being with us this morning. We're really looking forward to this. Well, thanks. Yeah. You know, it's been a 20-year labor of love. We didn't just immediately come up with the idea. I actually had my part of the book written 22 years ago. Wow. But as you can imagine, I never wanted to push the mother of my organ donor. So I waited. And uh, the result was after 22 years, I got a call from an excited donor mother. Said, did you get your Christmas present yet? Did you get it? Did you get it? And I said, no, no. So the box finally arrived. I said, it's not Christmas yet. And she said, open it. <laughs> it was the binder she had written for part of the book. And that was her Christmas present. And uh, I'm not, a, believe it or not, although I write curriculum and training and development by trade, I'm a bad writer. <laughs> I, need, I have a lot of great ideas, but putting them in writing, I need people to prove it and edit it. Because I surround myself by people that are better than me. And so, you know, that's what I've done. And this book was a labor of love. I, I can tell you that most transplant recipients get to say thank you by writing a letter to their organ donor family, and it's anonymous. But to me, that always sounded hollow. I'm very fortunate 
And then I got to say thank you via letter, via meeting in person, and then by writing the living legacy of the guy that gave me the gift of life. So incredible. And I think it's so cool how we're all together right now. I mean, maybe dad, you can talk a little bit about just like, we're not together because, you know, you released this book. We're together because there was history and your lives before all of this became a part of it, really. Right. Pete and I met, I was selling, selling him software. <laughs> at, it was Rico, right? Yeah, it was Rico. Yeah. And, um, and it turned out, you know, I was also a, a trainer and public speaker and Pete is a trainer and, and we met and we just stayed in touch all these years. That was sometime in the 90s. It's kind of a, it's not a weird thing, but it, it is in a way. We've only met each other a handful of times, mm -hmm. but I feel like we have a pretty solid friendship. It's like a friendship, yeah. like my fraternity brothers in college. Oh, I could so. not see them for 10 years, but when I talk to them, it's like I haven't just met yesterday. Yeah, well, thank That's you. I, I appreciate that because it's, it's true. And because I was telling Christina, I said, you know, no, we weren't like we weren't drinking buddies or we, we didn't go out, you know, here and there, but we would always stay in touch for whatever reason. And it was really nice. And we, we would catch up every, you know, whatever, few years or something. And when I think something yeah. you said, too, was you were like, I just always really liked Pete. He was yeah. such a good guy. And yeah. and I think just the, the release of this book and getting a deeper view into the incredible and remarkable story that you have and what you lived through. I, I mean, it was kind of surprising to mm -hmm. you in a, in a sense, right? Right. So how, how Pete, as, as you've, if we think a little bit about kind of like, you got to know each other before you were the recipient of a heart transplant, right? Yeah. And as you've, you know, kind of grown and evolved over the years, how has this experience changed you as a person? Do you feel like the same Pete you were before or, you know, how no. do you feel? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I, can, I can answer that with an anecdotal story. When I was at RICO, I spent 11 years at RICO. I was promoted once in the first five years. And after the transplant, you don't really, I, I kind of wish everybody in the world could go through a heart transplant because the change in perspective and attitude would make the world a whole lot better place. I don't hold on to things too often. I mean, Lord knows I get teed off sometimes at people, but I don't hold on to it. And that's the greatest gift that the transplant gave me. Coming back to the story with Rico, after transplant, I was promoted three times. So I'm not sure if the moral of the story is if, if you don't give a darn, you get promoted. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the case. That's what I'm doing wrong. That's I, don't, it, I don't hold on to things. And I'll make my point more clearly and concisely now, but I, but if people disagree with me, I realize that the best thing I can do is be the best version of me. And that's what I tell my son every day because he gets frustrated in basketball. I said, you can't control anything. Just be the best version of you. And then if the people don't like it, it's not your problem. It's theirs, you know, and, and Jim knows. I mean, we, we went through things at Wagner. You know, I wrote a public opinion article called The Beak Speaks. <laughs> Wagner College was a Seahawks. And I wrote an article about the dean of students. It was 
not a mean article, but it was a strong article. And they came to the gym and wanted to know who the beep was. And Jim, of course, didn't didn't release his sources. <laughs> and they came in and uh, brought me in and into the dean's office. And my father came with me. My father went to the same college and was in Delta New. He came in. I think it was the proudest moment I ever had with my dad. I came in and my dad said, do you have any proof? And I'm a 1964 alumna. Let's let it go. I walked out and I was like, yeah, that's my dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's so cool that you and Jim, so, so Jim, who was the writer as the story was told, right, for this book, and you guys were, were Teak brothers, fraternity brothers. So what a special thing to be able to, you know, having known Pete so well, to be able to tell this story of you and Janet. Well, I'm still in shock you remember the beak speak, so I'm, I'm, I'm having a moment here. Uh, but it, but it is unique, and, and and really, I don't I don't like to think of myself as as the writer of the book. I, I didn't write it. I, I was more the caretaker. I wrote parts of it, but yeah, the fact that we have known each other so long, but it brought quite an irony to it also because I know Pete so well, and to date, I I, I know Janet through emails and Zoom conversations and talking on the phone and, and social media and such, but we haven't met yet. Just just the nature of how things are nowadays you know COVID certainly didn't help right so it's quite the contrast and yeah i mean i had to be aware of it all the time it's like you know i i obviously i know pete very very well and i had to be sure that everything's being included and, and that, was, that was the caretaker part of my contribution to this you know, just the idea of treating the, you know, treating what I was learning with respect. And it was quite an emotional process. Uh, I had to stop a number of times, you know, just because it was just becoming emotionally challenging mm -hmm. to continue. Let me, let me tell you, if you can imagine, I said, I'm not a writer. I'm really not. I kept a journal when I was in the hospital. And we threw an enormous amount of paper at him. Jim was able to go through every piece of paper and put it into a, into somewhat of a story that enabled Jan and I to then go in and edit, make sure that every point in the book said, this is what happened, this is why it happened, and this is how I felt mm -hmm. at that moment. This is how my family felt at that moment. But Jim, to me, this book never would have happened without without him doing the, what he did so i mean he's being humble but well we appreciate that it did we and do. i i've just found it so powerful the way and and readers if you get this book tragedy to triumph the story of tom's heart it's broken out in such a meaningful way to first from from jan janet's perspective the mother of tom who was the young boy that that passed that really gave way for us, Pete, to be having this conversation today, which is incredible. But the first part is is Janet's story, right, and her perspective and getting to know Tom. The second part is Pete's perspective. And when you talk about Pete, if people had the opportunity to experience what you experienced, reading the journal entries it was so powerful. You could feel the highs and the lows and your time in the hospital and 
you know, the build up to, you know, anticipation for a heart and then the letdown of, you know, maybe it not being the right time for you. And then the story, and I don't want to give it away, but the story of how it comes together was just incredible. So what were some of the, like for you, just, I guess, and for our listeners, your key learnings throughout that, obviously, you know, looking back, you're, you're now saying, don't sweat the small stuff, right? Just kind of live and, and do your best. But what an experience and, and you know, to have lived through that and, and spent several months in the hospital waiting. Imagine that taught you patience, but what was that like for you? So I'm going to talk about three points to answer your question. I was, I was in the hospital from April 17th through September 13th. I waited three and a half months for the transplant. I was in the coronary care unit three times. I was probably about a month away of not making it had I not received the heart that I received. It was to the point where I couldn't walk 20 feet without having to stop to catch my breath. I celebrated my 32nd birthday in the hospital. So, you know, Christina, I never, this may be hard to believe, it never entered my mind, not even for a minute, that I wouldn't survive. Because I, I don't want to sound cavalier, but there's really two outcomes for me. Either I was put to sleep and I woke up and I had a better life, or I didn't wake up and I have a better life. You know, and if you're going to die, the best possible thing you can ask for is for to die not in pain. I mean, anecdotally, I was just, I, when I finally went in for the transplant, I don't know if I put this in the book, but it's a true story. When I went in for the transplant, it was one o'clock in the morning. Now, who in their right mind, it gets on the operating table, has an artery line in, another IV in, the nurses are talking to me. Honest to God, I was tired. I fell asleep because I was tired. I was not nervous. I, I just fell asleep. When I finally woke up, the only reason I know that I was transplanted, I thought I didn't have the transplant. And then I looked down and I saw the, what we call the zipper club mark on my chest. And I was like, oh yeah, I did have it. I kept nervous because I felt my heart beating. Most transplant recipients really feel their heart beat because their old heart was so bad. And so the second aspect is what I went through was nothing. It really wasn't. But in, I come from a really big, really close, in your business, Irish Catholic family. I have four sisters. 25 cousins and 115 second cousins. And that's just my mom's side of the family. We have litters. <laughs> so, so when we, what worried me the most was nobody had really died on my mom's side of the family. Everybody was long livers. My grandmother was 97 when she passed away. And here I am looking at the death store. And what would concern me more was the impact that it would have on my family because they had to watch their son wither away before their eyes. And there is absolutely nothing they could do except to hope by the grace of God, and, a, and in this case, a 16-year-old boy, in the worst moment of their life, made a decision to provide the gift of life to somebody like me. You know, is that a, I don't even remember what the original question was, but I think I am. I don't either, but I, whatever you just said, I'm, it, was it, it was amazing. 
Yeah. When you talk about resilience, and I'm, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, but, you know, Christina, and we talk about this, being nervous, anxious, you know, you, you don't know why, right? You're just, you go through the day, and for some reason, you're anxious. Hope you're not mad at me. No, I, I get anxiety. Uh, yeah, no, she gets anxiety. <laughs> and, you know, life is like that your job, uh, you're going to do a presentation, or your boss is upset, or this or that. And, and the one thing I said to, and Pete, I'm sure you'll be able to elaborate on this, but I also used to, you know, be anxious a lot. And she said, do you get anxious? And I said, well, I used to, but I think I've reached an age where I've, like, gotten past a lot of the things I used to be anxious about are no longer an issue. <laughs> but I said, if you think about when you're anxious, think about three days ago. Can you remember what you were anxious about three days ago? And it's probably you don't, right? Right, Jim? So it's like you don't even remember. So try to put it out of your mind a little earlier. And I think, you know, Pete, you, you talked about this a little bit, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more based on your experiences around anxiety or being nervous. And I can, I can address it perfectly for you. Mm -hmm. What's the worst possible thing that can happen? I think about, there are times where I think about, okay, I have a transplanted organ. How long am I going to live? There are times where I'll, I don't want to get emotional. <laughs> there are times where I'll be lying in bed, eyes wide open, thinking about what I can't think about. And so what I resolve to myself to is the fact that I just say, you know what, God, if you decide to let me wake up tomorrow, great. If not, take care of my family, you know? So my message to you is you have your family. Do you have kids? No. You have, okay, you have your husband? I you do. Your, yep. And you have good friends and family? My dad's okay, but the rest of the family's great. <laughs> you were doing so well, Pete. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You, you don't have to be, I don't have to be anxious on my own. So when I have those moments, the best man at my wedding was a heart recipient, Frank Padino. I call him up and I say, hey, Frank, I need to come off the cliff. And that gets me through that moment. For a long time, I was embarrassed by it. Embrace it. You're so right. You know, and just a conversation with a friend, tell me if I'm wrong. A conversation with somebody close to you gets rid of the anxiety, you know? And so that's how I deal with anxiety around the transplant. You know, in September, I had a really close call. I had a cellulitis infection in my leg that got misdiagnosed. And I ended up with 105 degree fever, double pneumonia when I was septic. Okay. The doctors told me if I went on a ventilator because of some pulmonary issues that I would never come off and I wouldn't survive. So the first thing the doctors told my wife was we need to put him on a ventilator or he's going to die. My wife said, put him on the ventilator. They said, well, you need to understand because of underlying conditions, there's an 80% chance he'll never come off. But if I don't put him on it, he'll die. So they put me on it five days later. They put me on a trach, woke me up. And seven days after that, they took the trach out. They wanted to put me in rehab for a few weeks. And I said, I'm not going to rehab. What do I need to do? They said, you need to walk 200 feet. You need to take a shower, dress yourself, and go to the bathroom on your own. I stood up. They said, give me my walker. I walked around two nurses' stations. And they said, come back, take a rest. I said, no, I need to take a shower. 
no, you got me sweat. I took a shower, got dressed. I said, could you guys excuse me? I have to, for the purposes of the podcast, I'll say I had to do number two. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more crafts. Uh, I did that, got up, walked out of the room. I said, now I'll sit down. Any questions? He said, no, you can go home. And mm -hmm. so when I got, when they told me I could go home to bring this home, I got really paranoid because I didn't want to be a burden to my wife. My legs were weak and, and everything. But I said, I called up Frank and I said, help me through this. He said, 24 years ago, you couldn't, you couldn't even put any weight on your legs and you did it. I'm hanging up now. Yeah. <laughs> I laughed and I said, I'm ready to go home. And wow. So to bring that home, you know, when you start to feel anxious, text me. <laughs> I love that. Well, and, wow. and I think it's, it's amazing. And he means that, by the way. Yeah. Well, and I think it's amazing, Pete. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, everything that you've done since you were, you know, probably found out that you needed the transplant, were waiting for the transplant, and since, you know, the gift that Jan and, and, and Tom gave you, right, has been so purpose-driven, and what an incredible person. Like, it's obvious why you are still here, because you've had such a, an incredible journey and you've done so much good for so many other people. So, I mean, maybe can you talk a little bit about what that really challenging time in your life, season of your life, and sounds like it hasn't been easy since, right? But you are a fighter and driven and pur purpose driven. So what has that looked like for you? And I think that sense of community and finding people that were, you know, dealing with a similar experience, how did that impact your life? It's funny, I was in end-stage heart failure when I went in in 1996. They do what they call a heart catheterization, and they inject medicine, which is designed to bring pressures which are very high, to bring them down. Right. can't bring the pressures down. They can't do a heart transplant. They did five catheterizations and they couldn't get the pressures down. They were gonna do one more, and then they were just gonna make me comfortable and live as long as I could. I think part of it comes comes down to faith. I called my mom. I said, I want you to get Father Pat. I want you to bring him up to the hospital. They live about an hour away. And uh, Father Pat, he's not a people person. And uh, if you know anything about my mom, you'll understand the story I'm about to tell you. She called Father Pat and said, uh, Pat, I'm, I, I, need, I need you to come up to the hospital to New York Presbyterian. Pete's very sick and he wants you to come up and give him a blessing. And Father Pat's response was, well, isn't there a minister in the hospital? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Mom said to him, you don't understand. I'm coming to get you now. Be ready. And Jim knows if you know anything about my mom, you know why he was dressed and red. <laughs> And he came up and he gave me, he said, all right, I'm going to give you the rights. I said, no, you're not. I'm not dying. He said, well, people get confused. It's a blessing for the sick. True story. He gave me a blessing. The next day they did the catheterization. The pressures came down. They put me on the transplant list. Status two, which means I'm on the list, but I'm not the most sick in the country, which is status one. Five days later, 
I was so stable that they released me status two from the hospital to wait outside the hospital. I was on 35 pills a day, but I was released. And when I, when, when I think about what I got out of this, I think it's, it's like, kind of like the Nike commercial. There, there's not a no, there's just a just do it. You know what I mean? Do it the best you can. If you can't do it, then do what you can. Like I used to, I, I coached basketball for 25 years, but I can't run up and down the court. My legs just aren't strong enough. So I use my mind and other coaches and I teach basketball knowledge and positioning and I adapt. And that's what I try to teach my son. And that adaptation came after the transplant. Well, when I had the issues which you read about in the book, Jim mentioned uh, an anecdote that was actually Don Arthur. Don was uh, an African-American guy that was in my wedding party and a heart recipient. And he race walked the New York Marathon. You know that funny walk? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I always had a positive attitude until I went into rehab. And they told me it would be four to six months to get your legs back. The muscles are resilient. And in four to six months, you'll walk out with a walker. Well, after five months in the hospital, that was the only time I got bummed out. And Don came to see me. Never forget it. It was one of those imprint moments in your life. I can see it in, your, in my mind today. He walked in, saw me feeling sorry for myself, and he said, and I quote, you selfish bastard. I said, what's the matter with you? He said, look around you. There are people without limbs, prosthetics, and boo-hoo, you're completely healthy, and you got to learn to walk again. Get over yourself, you selfish bastard. And he walked out of the room. I didn't see him for two days. But you know what? An hour later, I called my father. I said, Dad. Don gave me a dose of reality. I need five pound ankle weights. I'm gonna sleep with them and wear them 24 seven. I walked out of the hospital with a cane three and a half weeks later. Wow. wow. I had the transplant on August 5th and I was back at work full time December 1st. Wow. Unbelievable. I flew 100,000 miles in the air for the next four years. Training? Yep. Yeah. And so for people that are listening to this, you either do it or you don't do it. And if you don't do it, do the best you can with what you got. I honor my organ donor another way by living my best life. And uh, I was fortunate enough to meet the brother of my organ donor about three years ago uh, down here in Florida and his wife. And that's what I said to him. I said, I can't imagine what it's like knowing your brother's heart is beating inside my chest. All I can tell you is I'm living my best life for him. And so. It's incredible. You know, that that's just perfect what you said. When we're talking about resilience. And, you know, originally we we're thinking about the people whose businesses were impacted and losing income and, and how you, you know, regroup and, and recast yourself and redevelop and and so yeah. on. And what you just, that that entire story and how, how you were snapped into a realization of I got to do this and I am lucky in a, in a way, you know, and everybody who has lost things, their business or income or, or a part of their health, and maybe they're not the same as they were before. You still have a lot. Yeah. And you regroup. Yeah. And like you said, 
you either do it and if you can't do it and i love that line if you can't do it just do the best you can yeah i love that you talked about joe about things that impact people mm -hmm. christina with your permission i want to share a couple passages from the book i would love that i want you i want your listeners to understand you you've heard from my perspective but I want you to hear what a family in crisis is able to do in the worst moment of their life. So is that okay? Of course. So this was written by my primary care doctor, and it's in the prologue of my book. But she said, Tragedy to Triumph, the story of Tom's heart, is the harrowing and heart-wrenching tragedy that struck him and his family. At the worst moment any family should ever have to deal with, the parents said yes to organ, eye, and tissue donation, so the lives of others could be saved and enhanced. For Tom's mother, it offered hope in the midst of despair, a purpose in the midst of tragedy, and light in the midst of the darkest night of her life. By saying yes to donation, another mother and family did not have to wonder, wait, or face the death of their son. Other friend, Pete Radigan, who is an end-stage heart failure, at Columbia Hospital, unsure if he would live or die, received Tom's heart, the gift of life. And she goes on to say, this is their story. And Jan goes on right at the beginning of the book, and she says, this book encompassed a labor of love, rich, powerful memories, and strong emotions that surrounded the tragedy and loss interwoven with the power of hope. We cannot thank our family and friends enough, far too many to mention for your unending support through our personal, intimate, individual, and collective journeys together. Your listening ears and words of encouragement contributed to our healing and enabled us to provide hope for others who have, who are, or who will be traveling this road. In our minds, you made this story possible and have our profound gratitude. And to my beloved son, Thomas Corbin, whose thoughtful plan and loving decision made this possible. There is a gift in every tragedy, which he wanted to share. I loved all that you were for 16 years, 345 days, and 20 hours on earth, which went far too fast. I miss our talks and miss being your mom. So, you know, I, I think that family is one thing, but we went through it, but our families went through it and supported us as well. So it's hard. Uh, sorry, there's one more passage. Is that, is that okay? Of course. So when Jen was waiting, when her son had had the accident, the next day as I awoke, I lay there trying to believe the unbelievable. Now, as I read this passage to the people listening to this, think about if your mother your father, your sister, your brother, or a close friend were withering away before your eyes, were brain dead, living by a machine only, and you were asked at the worst moment of your life, would you consider the gift of life? Wouldn't you want to know what your loved one's intentions are? So as I read this, think to yourself, do I know what my mom or dad, sister or brother, or close friend would want if the worst ever happened. So quoting Jen, how can a mother fathom that her son is dead? 
He still looked alive as I entered his room to say goodbye as the sounds of the respirator kept his chest rising and full. His skin was pink in color and he was warm to the touch, but I cognitively knew he was brain dead. I put my arms around him one last time amidst the tube and respirators. I said, Tom, I love you and I'm glad God chose me to be your mother. And I started to cry. I will miss you a lot. I consoled myself by knowing he was safe, alive in heaven, his death a mercy of God, and I would see him again. I could never wish him back in his present physical state. I struggled with believing it and knowing he would no longer be with us on earth, which was heart-wrenching. The next day as I lay there trying to believe the unbelievable, I wrestled between not accepting it and compelling my mind to assimilate its truth as I repeated, Tom is dead, Tom is dead. I tried to force the appalling reality in the hope of allowing it to penetrate as tears ran down my face. My heart literally hurt. It was all too much to bear. On that day, August 5th, the paper read, motorcyclist dies of injuries. It did not, however, mention that lives were saved due to organ tissue and eye donations, which would come much later. I focused instead on my belief that he was alive in heaven. As I read the obituary in the newspaper the next day, August 6th, I stared in disbelief. This can't be, he's too young. Maybe someone will tell me this is a bad truth, but no one ever did. And yet I momentarily forgot his wish. If anything happens to me, I wanna donate my organs so others will live. Organ donation would be Tom's legacy. His request fulfilled and honor bestowed as four lives saved and others enhanced. I would never know how far reaching his decision would be until I met Tom's heart recipient. Let me introduce you to Pete Ratting. That was so powerful. So I say that to say, think about what I, what I said about doing it, doing the best you can being the best version of the person you can be. Now translate that into the worst night any family could ever have in their life. Right. And you have to make that decision. Because believe it or not, federal law says any death, any hospital, anywhere in the country, you're going to be asked about organ and tissue donation. So if you're going to be asked, why not have the decision? Even if it's no, have the discussion. I learned a valuable lesson from Jack Will Cicero, whose daughter Amy was the sixth victim of Colin Ferguson back in 1993, railroad mm-hmm. shootings. Because I had a conversation with him and I was telling him there's an inherent guilt for transplant recipients because someone had to die so that you could live. And so I said to him, I told him exactly that. And he said, you know what, Pete? My daughter did not die to become an organ donor. She died. And as a result of that death, I was able to make the choice to provide the gift of life. But she didn't die to give you a heart. She died. And I said, well, I never know what to say to a family. And I'll ask you this offline, Joe, but anybody time you ever meet somebody that lost a loved one, don't ever act like it's the big pink elephant in the corner of the room Everybody knows it's there, but nobody wants to talk about it. Honor the loved one's life and say to them, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. 
tell me a story about him. What was he like? That's really nice. I love that. You know? And I loved that with that, we got to meet Tom through your story. That's true. That's right. Tom. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm sorry, Jim, go ahead. My, my hope, you know, wish and intention would be that, you know, Tom's lasting impact along with the organs that he donated himself would be that families have the opportunity because I, I knew about organ donation for my driver's license. That, that was really the extent of it. It seemed like a good idea. Check the box and don't really think about it after that. It, it didn't give me any impetus to have a dialogue with anybody. It didn't give me any reason to want to talk with my family about it. But I hope that reading this book and learning, learning these stories will give families the opportunity to open up that dialogue. That's, you know, when we talk about the story of Tom's heart, that's how I would hope it will continue yeah. That brings up a good point, Christina, because 20% of the proceeds from Tragedy and Triumph, the story of Tom's heart, is targeted to Donate Life America. Wow. And uh, for a specific purpose. I have a vision for the future that I hope I'll be able to fulfill before God takes me. I believe that for our generation, and I'm speaking about Joe, Jim, and I. <laughs> Thank you for that, Pete. <laughs> Grew up afraid of organ and tissue donation. It was like that thing with the the bakey or an animal transplant. You just didn't transplant somebody's organ. I never even thought about it until I went into heart failure. And then I was kind of a realist. I was like, let's schedule it, get it over with. What I want to do is I want to target the next generation of organ donors for high school kids and university kids. Kids that will say to you, why wouldn't I? And I call. I have a marketing campaign all read up in my mind. Generation Next, for the next generation of organ donors. Our book puts you in the shoes of a donor family and a recipient. Every organ recovery organization in the state has a targeted high school curriculum. I want to embed our book into the curriculum so that people can see firsthand what a donor family goes through what a recipient goes through, can bring that discussion home, and then they can ask the organ recovery organization for a donor family recipient team to come in and speak to high school students. When I've done that, almost 100% of the kids, and I know this because they sent little thank yous, told their parents when Oman had the discussion. So I'm training upwards. That's great. That's amazing. So my goal is to have a portal by which the next generation makes organ donation the norm rather than the exception. That is great. So, Pete, as you endeavored to reach out to and meet Jan, as you talked a little bit about the recipient guilt, what did that connection mean to you and, and to Jan? I understood from reading you know, there, that it, it wasn't the easiest of connections to make. But what impact has that had on your life? Well, the meeting, you first communicate anonymously. And that whole process and all the letters we wrote between me, my family, my sisters, and Jen back and forth was anonymous until we agreed to know, talk to each other, which I did for the first time on Christmas of 1999. And then when we met, I was actually doing a training program in Toronto, Canada. And Jan lives in Niagara Falls, so it's about an hour drive on the other side of the border. And I was so nervous 
and I was teaching a three-day class. <laughs> and so I, so I told the students what was going on. Of course, the restaurant I met, the mother of my organ donor, my students all picked the same restaurant. But we met in my hotel room. And you really, there's no other way to say it, but you have no idea how many emotions coexist in one time until you embrace the mother whose heart is beating inside your chest. And I don't know what came over me. I really don't because this could have gone south real quick. But I said to her, do you want to hear his heartbeat? Wow. And so that picture on the back of the book is a picture of me with darker black hair and a little bit thinner than I am. With Jan putting her ear on my chest and listening to her son's heartbeat. It's incredible. It's a really special picture. But I, I read that and I was so touched. And, and I think she made a comment about that that heartbeat in, you know, inside of her for nine months yeah. before. So it's just yeah. the way that you and, and Jan are connected is just such a such an incredible, incredible connection that I don't I don't think you could possibly fathom not being in the situation that you're in. Well, she came to my wedding and I surprised her. You know, I danced the mother son with my mom. And uh, about halfway through the reception, I had a seven piece band that played. I had them play Lionel Richie's Hero. And I called Jan up to the dance floor and I got up on the microphone and just gave a little speech. And I danced a little bit with Jan. And, you know, I, after we danced for a minute or two, I was kind of waving everybody up. And I couldn't, I was actually getting a little bit annoyed. And nobody was coming up and dancing for Turned around, and everybody was bawling. <laughs> they were crying on the side. I mean, it took down the house. Well, if I may, that was something that, you know, I abused the book and it's highlighted and, and everything because I loved it. But I think this was such a powerful excerpt. And I'm probably going to get choked up reading it, but it says, At 10.30, the DJ announced, Pete has one last request. As he asked the curious onlookers, Would Janet Mock, the woman who made this possible, please approach the dance floor? Surprised, Janet made her way to the center of the room, where the lyrics of Hero by Mariah Carey began to resonate over the tired but inquisitive crowd. Pete and the guests waited for his dance partner to reach the center of the dance floor. As the lyrics extolled, the themes of heroism, strength, and overcoming fear. For the next four minutes, it would become Janet Mock's song as they danced together. And then, in the middle of the dance floor, in front of at least 100 spectators, the room fell silent as she heard and felt the heartbeat of her son, Tom. Leave it to your wife to tell you the truth. My wife just came over and whispered it was Mariah Carey, not Lionel Richie. <laughs> I always say the wrong thing. But what that That's is, beautiful. such a... It's just such a special and incredible bond that you've shared. And I think that Tom must be very proud watching his legacy live on through the work that you're doing and and through the relationship that you have with his mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jen said, I think if Tom came down from heaven, he would go like this. Two thumbs up. That's it. For sure. It's funny because when I was going down for surgery, there was a standing ovation. I'm on the cart coming down, and I was I was crying because you have security, food service, nurses, interns, residents, doctors that are all giving you a standing ovation 
because you're about to have the gift of life. But I was crying because someone died and, and people are clapping. And it just felt like I understood why, but it in a way felt wrong, you know? So There's no way probably to describe that, right? Happy for you, but just sad because, you know, and, and I think that's, that's life, right? It's like, a bad situation makes way for, you know, other good ones. And sometimes I think to your point before, he didn't die so you could live, right? He died and, and gave you the gift of living. Yeah, and I think that God's had me on this earth for another 24 years to really tell Tom's story. Mm-hmm. We had 16 years, but now he'll live on. Absolutely. That's beautiful. We so appreciate the time, Pete and, and Jim, and we thank you for telling the story. We thank you for sharing it with us, um, for our listeners to just have this, this story of inspiration. And Pete, I think you're just getting started as far as what you're going to do. And, you know, tell us what's next. I'm going to answer that with a little bit of what we talked about beforehand, because I, f- I forgot about this until you just said that. Uh, I mentioned before our conversation that I got bored, semi-retired, got bored, and developed a program called CLICK, stands for Connect Like It Counts. Um, my business partner, when we were trying to message it, said to me, why is connection important? And I gave him all the business answers. He said, Pete, why is it, in, in your heart, why is it important? I said, because I want, I, I want to be able to talk to people and connect with people on an emotional level the way I can talk about organ and tissue donation or about sales, which I know so passionate, but I never could do it. But getting to the emotions that drive the way people think is my passion. It comes out in the book, it comes out in the training program, and it's what people need today. If Republicans and Democrats could connect and understand the emotions that drive decisions. Imagine what Washington would turn into. If business leaders could teach their employees to understand decisions and the emotions behind it, how would that change the way America is in the world if countries could connect on a deeper emotional level? So for me, my next chapter is twofold. Number one, to put click into every high school and university and drive and be able to put a name, a face and a personality with transplant. Because otherwise it's just a thing. But today, everybody that listens to this can put a name and a face and a personality with organ donation through gen and with transplantation through me. Mm-hmm. And with click, it will teach other people how to get to the emotional freedom that I now experience as a result of what, of what I went through. In a way, I wish everybody could go through a transplant because of the transformation in behavior and thinking, but just not have to go through surgery. Pretty much any place you can buy a book today, you can get Tragedy to Triumph, the story of Tom's heart. And if Jen and I are available and Jim are available, if companies are looking for a little bit different twist on leadership, a little bit different twist on motivating their employees. We're available for keynote speaking and for events, especially around the holiday. 
anything that will drive people towards understanding organ and tissue donation. Beautiful. That's great. And where Beautiful. can they go to connect with you, Pete? Uh, they can go to www.tragedytotriumph.net or to contact at tragedytotriumph.net. And I'm real good about the sundown rules. So if you contact me, you'll hear from me within 24 hours. That's great. And we will put all of that in the notes for the podcast and on YouTube. So that great. is wonderful. That's absolutely Thank wonderful. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thanks for being here also. We really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your heart and Tom's heart and Jan's heart with all of us. I think we're better for it. And the lesson of the day is do your best, whatever your best is in that moment. Amen to that. Amen Wonderful. to that. Wherever you are, whatever your story, thanks for spending time with us this morning. Now, go and make a difference in your world. Let me talk through this one. <laughs> That's it. Love it. Here comes the dance. Good way to end it. Yeah. <laughs> On an up note. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs>